the, the colonial period had a profound uh, effect on uh, the Kenyan cuisines. The Eastern, Eastern African coast has been in touch with many other continents, especially Asia. The question which you should have, you know, sort of asked from the beginning is if food is cultural and food is political, then how does that politics reflect on my plate? The system was really deeply rooted. It was in, in, the, in our education system. Our education system was only about cash crops. Food is one of those aspects of a society that is very political, mm-hmm. you know, um, in terms of uh, who gets to produce, uh, who gets to buy it, uh, who gets to benefit, both in terms of the farmers. The, the sad thing is um, since um, uh, the, the advent of, of colonialism, mm-hmm. many of these have, have not really been given um, their, their due chance of, of further development. You're listening to the Chakula Podcast. You're listening to the Chakula Podcast, a podcast of the Root to Food Initiative. The Root to Food Initiative is a publicly funded program of the Heinrich Paul Stiftung in Nairobi, Kenya. The Root to Food Initiative promotes the realization of the human right to food in Kenya by proposing agroecology as a solution. On this podcast, we bring to you relevant issues on food and farming systems in Kenya and beyond. We break down topics and dig deeper into day-to-day happenings on our food and farming systems, giving a holistic view on the food we eat. Food is an integral part of Kenyan culture, representing a rich tapestry of traditions and heritage. In Kenya, food is not merely for sustenance. It holds immense social and cultural significance. Different communities have their different cuisines, preparation techniques, and food-related rituals that have been passed on through generations. I'm your host, Felistas Molia. And today, we have two esteemed guests joining us for a reflective, yet also a very interesting discussion on how colonialism shaped our culinary and dietary habits in Kenya. We are delighted to have Dr. Maundu. He works for the National Museums of Kenya. And I also have Darius Okola, who's a curator at the Elephant. Karibu sana to the show, Dr. Maundu. Thanks, and thanks for having me. And karibu sana to the show, Darius. Thank you, thank you for having me. Are you excited to talk about food, knowing the fact that food is at the center of everything and how our culture, how our food cultures have been able to change due to colonization? Definitely. I mean, it is in the morning uh, to our food is an integral part of how we all want to start our day and how we carry out um, you know, uh, the various aspects that food occupies in our daily lives. So I'm excited to be here. Thank and you. I think just to start, Darius, did you have breakfast? Because you said that it's in the morning and of course food is... Uh, did you? And what did you have for breakfast? Yes, I did. Uh, I grabbed a cup of tea um, because I was in a bit of a rush. So I just grabbed a cup of tea and I was on my way. Okay, so you didn't have like manduma, mangwashi? I should have yeah. made some. Okay, it's fine. I think to kick things off, let's delve into the topic. And uh, I think Darius, to start us off, in your assessment, how has colonial experience shaped our food cultures and its specific impact basically to the traditional food systems in Kenya? 
I think one of uh, the key elements that we uh, noticed when we started uh, doing the food series annually mm-hmm. um, that had, you had mentioned earlier is the fact that there is a lot uh, that whatever is on your particular plate says about where you are, what you are doing, you know, in terms of class conversations, um, in terms of uh, what you are producing uh, you know, as a community, as individually, it, it matters of preferences in terms of what you would want to eat. So food is one of those aspects of a society that is very political, mm-hmm. you know, um, in terms of uh, who gets to produce, uh, who gets to buy it, uh, who gets to benefit both in terms of the farmers, uh, what gets to be available within particular locales. Mm-hmm. And so food is a very, very political experience, you know, any random uh, a plate of food tells you a lot about where you are. It's also cultural, and in terms of culture, we talk about uh, matters to do, uh, for example, uh, what are the habits of particular people. You know, Culture is usually defined as man's attempt uh, to try and find a coherent set of answers uh, to the questions that plague him or her at whatever point they're in. And part of that, of course, is... Uh, how they're able to feed their people and how they're able to feed their people includes uh, the seed preservation. Uh, where do they get the seeds? What gets to grow where you are? And who got to bring what? At what point in history did did your interaction with other communities or other regions, was what kind of interaction was it? Uh, was these uh, food experiences forced upon you? So there is a lot that goes on on a simple plate of food on a table. Okay. And to link it particularly to the colonial experience yeah. is the fact that you look through um, our historical dynamics and you realize, as Kenyans in particular, is that there's a lot of uh, foods that were brought on. And for one reason or another, they caught on in terms of our experiences. Do we, for example, take maize and beans? Um, what does it serve? Uh, some of the food wars that you see on social media platforms and in in some of the ways, for example, we got to outlaw or rather the colonial experience outlawed, including aspects like our traditional brews, you know. Mm-hmm. And you you look at the irony of the fact that it was um, it was framed as a moral conversation. You know, they say, yeah. you know, don't take this, yeah. don't take that, it's mm-hmm. wrong. But it's the same people who are telling you that that were, you know, importing and introducing uh, local communities into their foreign brews, you know. Yeah. And so you see this sort of moralization of some of these conversations around food. You see, for example, introduction of maize and beans because it, it was looked at as, you know, provide uh, more energy for people to work in the farms. And so and it was easy to mass produce. So it becomes the food that is preferred among the people. Thank you so much, Darius, uh, for starting off the conversation. You've clearly started the conversation on a high note. And I definitely know Dr. Maundu has so much to share with us. And I also, I didn't mention at the beginning, but Dr. Maundu, he's joining us via Zoom. So I'll also just let himself introduce himself, tell us more on what he does while also contributing to the discussion. Thanks. Um, I My my name is Patrick Maundu, as, as uh, I was in- introduced, and I work for the National Museums of Kenya. I've worked for the National, National Museums of Kenya for over 30 years now. Um, and uh, I am professionally uh, an ethnobotanist. That means I study 
plants and how plants relate to uh, people, but also I've extended my my studies to what we refer to as indigenous knowledge. And so I'm within the National Museums of Kenya, I'm in a center known as the Kenya Resource Center for Indigenous Knowledge. My I've worked a lot in Kenya, almost every part of this country, but also um, worked a lot in uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, um, within the CGIR um, uh, sort of uh, institutions. Um, and, and so I, I would say my my experience uh, uh, covers uh, quite a lot of the cultures we find in Sub-Saharan Africa. The, the colonial period had a profound uh, effect on uh, the Kenyan cuisines. Kenya, um, of course, is in the eastern uh, part of the continent, and uh, the, the eastern Eastern African coast has been in touch with uh, many uh, other continents, especially Asia, uh, Middle East, of course, and uh, uh, Europe, especially the southern part, the Mediterranean part of Euro Europe, has been in contact with the East African, East African coast for a very, very long time for hundreds and hundreds of years. Um, and so uh, that has been the entry point of many of the uh, crops that we, we we now use that have um, an Asian origin. Um, some of the crops, of course, uh, like the banana, um, like the banana have been around since in antiquity. And, um, uh, and 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 because they've been here for so long, uh, they are part of our culture. And in fact, some of the uh, varieties, some of the cultivars have been developed locally, uh, far, far away from their place of origin, which is South Asia. We have many others which are, um, have come um, and have been here for very long. Um, like taro, is it's taro, which in Kenya we call duma, or sometimes arrowroot, also came from Asia, South Asia a long, long time ago. It's part of our food culture now. Um, sugarcane, we make beer, um, uh, liquor from sugarcane, um, other than just the, the recent uh, development of making uh, sugar out of sugarcane. Locally, traditionally, it, it was an important part in the beer making process. And then, of course, the other, uh, the others like, um, um, the other crops that also came from, um, uh, distant places long time ago, uh, in South America, like, uh, the, the potato, uh, sweet potato, um, and also the cassava. Those are important, uh, traditional foods of the country. But then uh, we call those traditional because they are now part of our culture. We have developed new methods of making them, cooking them. Yeah. Um, despite the fact that they came from distant lands. Um, but uh, we also have uh, crops that uh, have been there here in Africa since time immemorial, which we are developed within the continent. A very good example is sorghum, for example. Sogam um, was first domesticated in the continent in the area around Chad. We also have uh, palm millet, um, which also uh, is, is an important crop, especially am among the Bantu. Yeah. Um, that 
that that was first domesticated in Africa in the region around Mauritania a long time ago. And it's one of the crops that actually, as the Bantus moved, migrated uh, from Cameroon, uh, from Cameroon uh, um, and the border with uh, Nigeria, they, they migrated with this crop. So it's, it's a very old crop, over four or five thousand years old. Um, then, uh, of course, others seem, seem uh, many people may not uh, uh, connect it to Africa, seem, seem. Sesame yeah. is an African crop. Um, um, watermelon, the, the one we enjoy very much, was first also domesticated in the, in the continent. Um, something like labla bean, the one we call Njahe, uh, that's, that's a very local bean, domesticated first in the uh, area around Equatoria uh, and, uh, uh, and uh, Ethiopia. And then we have others like the cow pea, the cow pea um, um, or the pea mm -hmm. has also been um, an important crop in the continent. So there are all these, another one, lab, lab bean um, has also um, its roots in the continent. So there are many others, uh, many of these important cereals, important legumes now widely used worldwide that have uh, can, their origins can be traced to the continent. Yeah, exactly. um, so, so that the continent, the continent has offered a lot uh, to the rest of the world in terms of cereals and also legumes and also vegetables. Mm -hmm. It has also offered uh, a lot. Um, but also, but now the, the sad thing is um, since since. Um, uh, the the advent of of colonialism, mm -hmm. many of these have have not really been given um, their their due chance of of further development mm -hmm. uh, in research and also um, in extension. They are just the way they are, even uh, just the way they are. Um, um, uh, they were uh, even before colonialism. Many of them have not really been advanced. The biggest impact that um, uh, the, the colonial period or the colonialists had on our food systems is is that of uh, the attitude they put on the African mind that uh, um, their 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 foods were um, not good enough, um, and. Uh, uh, I think that is the, the root cause of many of the problems that uh, many uh, uh, of the communities in the country are facing now because of that attitude uh, towards their food. Um, the, 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 the attitude is that uh, uh, what is local is not good enough. Uh, mm. And that's an attitude that... Uh, started during the colonial days um, mm -hmm. there, there is a lot of history um, um, that there, there are many many things that sort of contributed to that maybe it's not enough for this um, interview if i can mention a few one yeah. is um, uh, the fact that uh, the the some of the policies we are not supportive of uh, african foods um yeah, if i can give a, a very good example is um uh our our local brews where food 
where mm -hmm. a lot of brews, like what we call brusa, is actually food, despite mm -hmm. the fact that uh, the, uh, it has a little bit of alcohol in it. Um, it's it was food, and um, because it was in competition um, with uh, probably the commercial, the more commercialized beers, uh, it was outlawed. Um, and even after independence, um, uh, many of these liquors, many of these uh, local brews, were outlawed. They were they, they were branded the term illicit illicit brews, uh, despite the fact that, uh, like like in the case of Eastern Province, many much of that was prepared from um, specific types of sugarcane um, or or honey honey. And so they were very healthy. And it's those brews that were also uh, used in ceremonies, especially when you are blessing, when you are in marriage, in, uh, in, uh, in, uh, when you are offering sacrifices in, uh, for, for rain, in, in, uh, in um, sacred places. Those are the things which were used. And those were part and parcel of, of uh, the culture of the society. But then uh, um, here comes the, the 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 colonialists and also the the governments that followed. They mm -hmm. branded all that illicit brews, and and so um, the the local people found the, themselves in a fix because this is something which is food. It's part of their culture. Some of the ceremonies cannot go without it, and uh, now they find themselves in in this. The other thing is that uh, many, many of the food preparations also involve um, herbal plants. For example, in the Maasai case, mm -hmm. uh, Maasai is like soup. And soup is not taken without uh, herbs. Herbs uh, can be roots, can be bark, uh, can be cuttings of, of stem. stem. And, and these are put in soup and then they, they are boiled with the soup. Um, one as um, prophylaxis to guard them against certain diseases, common diseases, which are common among the Maasai. And uh, Maasai, I'm just taking Maasai as an example. Mm -hmm. This is this is spread along many communities. Uh, uh, so these herbs are put in soup, boiled together, um, and uh, they give, fortify them, themselves with those herbs. Uh, it gives them, them immunity against uh, common diseases. But then uh, I remember the 20, uh, 1925 uh, act that outlawed um, herbal remedies and, and uh, termed them, uh, bundled them together with witchcraft. Uh, so it's within the witchcraft act. act. And that, that is a law that has survived all that time up to uh, now or, or very recently um, when, uh, when people have now tried to, to sort of review it, repeal it. Um, so you, you see, even after colonialism, mm -hmm. the, the, the governments that came um, after colonialism didn't really do much to address some of the issues that uh, uh, they the colonial governments, I mean, some of the problems the colonial governments brought about. So, um, 
Uh, and it's not that alone. There, yeah. there are many other examples. For example, um, let, let's talk about seeds. Seeds, mm-hmm. uh, um, seeds, seeds are a very good example. Um, uh, our our mothers, uh, um, our people, our local people have been uh, exchanging seeds. I mean, since time immemorial. Um, uh, it's it's not bad to take. It wasn't. It was usual to take uh, your your seeds to the market and uh, uh, exchange them for something like other types of food or other types of seeds. That was very common. Um, it's also common to go to your neighbor, get seeds from your neighbor. Um, but now um, it's also. Uh, uh, perturbing to know that uh, that whole area of seed exchange and 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 seeds change uh, ch- seeds changing hands the seed system has also not favored the the local people it it's, yeah. it is it has leaned a lot towards it has favored the commercial companies if i can say that mm. um so the local person um that has not really, really benefited from uh, any of these laws because exchanging seeds, buying seeds, which are not in court certified, um, is actually illegal in the country. So, um, so that has also been a, a legacy uh, that uh, was also from the colonial days and it has not been addressed. Yeah, thank you so much, Dr. Maundo, for the insights. And Darius, over to you. I know before the session we talked about how some crops have actually evolved and it's quite interesting that Dr. Mahundu has also mentioned the introduction of some of the crops that were introduced in the country even before colonization. But but Darius, since you've been part of the elephant, you've also published quite several articles on how some food crops like maize, how they ended up being like part of our diets. Perhaps you could just expound more on how this ended up being part of our diet. What, what what happens is, you know, once there's this uh, land grab that we we witness. I mean, as a country, we were a settler colony. So once the you know they introduced uh, all these uh, large scale farming on what we used to call the white islands, you know, mm-hmm. uh, a problematic term, but for the purposes of uh, the conversation, then they needed workers. But then we were not a cash economy. We were mm-hmm. largely a subsistence economy, and you know, uh, communities would do their own butter trade. So in a way to get people to, to to participate in the cash economy, of course, introduce the, the, the taxes, you know, the heart tax, the, you know, the breast tax and all these taxes. Probably you could also expound on that. And yeah. when you introduce these taxes, people have to find a way to pay. But mm-hmm. the only way they can pay is to be able to integrate themselves into the cash economy. The only way they can do that is to work on these uh, islands. And the only way to get them to work for long is to provide them with the kinds of food that you think can sustain them to work throughout the day. And so that's how you end up with some of these foods introduced into our culinary culture. And basically, I read, I, read an, I read an article on the elephant written by Joe, where he also said that the fact that we enjoy maize and how ugali became our staple food is basically from what you've been, you've been able to explain right now. Exactly. Yeah. And I think, Darius, that takes me to the next question on the introduction of cash crops, actually, and plantation agriculture during colonialism. How did it affect the availability and consumption of traditional foods? There are a number of ways mm-hmm. um, that, that shapes uh, what goes on. One of them is, 
it, you, you end up with this competition between cash crops and food crops mm -hmm. in terms of people want to plant sugarcane or they want to plant coffee or they want to plant, um, you know, tea. tea. Yeah. And when they're doing that, what happens is they end up, the acreage under food crop reduces. Mm -hmm. So in the pursuit of uh, trying to make money out of the agricultural experiences by planting cash crops, then you're reducing the, you know, the availability of land for food crops, for the everyday food crops. And it's something we witnessed up to now. You go to places um, like uh, Mumias in Western Kenya, yeah. uh, parts of Central Kenya, you know, some of the coffee uh, areas. You see that, that people have tea or sugarcane or coffee in their farms, but there's a certain hidden poverty because yeah. you do not have enough food supplies to last a year. So what happens is, and some of these crops, they don't get paid immediately. So... Unless, you know, if you're doing two or three uh, harvesting seasons in a year and something like sugarcane is almost 18 months. Yeah. And for those 18 months, you literally uh, sink this hidden poverty within, and especially within the rural communities where uh, people do not have enough food to eat, yet there's a lot of stuff on the farm. So yeah. it, it becomes one of those uh, legacies of people trying to make money, but then the irony of it is that they're starving while yeah. at it. Yeah, it's quite yeah. interesting because even at the moment we see the government really supporting like coffee farmers, tea farmers, but they exactly. end up also, they always end up forgetting like the small small scale farmers who focus so much on our food crops. Yeah, but anyway, at the end of the day, they're trying to make money, but and of course, there's the conversations around uh, farm prices. There's conversations around yield. There's conversations around then once you've developed, you know, this uh, cash crop experience. Mm -hmm. The next level of that, of course, given the market inefficiencies within our communities and a lot of, you know, looking at the uh, some of the researchers uh, in our food, you know, the whole food series, is that uh, cartels begin to develop. Yeah. So uh, market access becomes a problem. Uh, so along the way, there's even inefficiencies in terms of this farmer with uh, the newly introduced crops trying to access uh, the market, trying to access good prices. And so it's, it creates, you know, sort of these spiraling problems along the continuum. And in the end, these, uh, these, these uh, cash crops introduced are not able to, you know, provide the kind of yield that would offset what they're losing by essentially giving up that land uh, from food crops. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh. Quite intense, Darius. I think now we'll go back to the cultural aspect and how has it basically evolved over time? I mean, it's what 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 you see. Um, it depends again with the communities because one of the positive aspects of this mm -hmm. is the fact that we have we're doing a lot of increasing research on on our food experiences as countries as a region. There's a lot of papers on these conversations. There's a lot of you know consortium of local organisations that are dealing with looking into what is the optimal food experiences for our people. And, you know, based on regions, based on class, we're having conversation about what really is, in, is on your plate and how did we come about that. We are having conversations around, you know, is it even viable anymore to keep, you know, coffee? And we're seeing people, yeah. you know, somewhere, you know, uprooting them and saying, mm -hmm. you know, this thing is not giving me uh, what we needed, you know, uh, the, either whether it's cash or, you know, sustainability for my farm. And so 
you begin to see that aspect of people begin to ask themselves uh, the question which you should have you know sort of asked from the beginning is if food is cultural and food is political then how does that politics reflect on my plate yeah you know yeah and if some of the experiences we picked and there are quite a number we've already mentioned uh, some of them being problematic and some of them being consequential then how do we begin to work backwards and you know correct some of those problems and there's a lot of robust work done around that you know some of those uh, experiences include the fact that you are seeing more um, you know even within towns you are seeing urban eateries that have a certain ethnic bent to yeah. them you know we are seeing a lot more health consciousness among people saying, you know, uh, I'm not sure I should be taking this. I'm not sure I should be taking that. I'm not sure I would want to have this, yeah. you know, as part of, uh, you know, my my culinary experience. What what I put on my plate, what I I buy. But I feel consumer. like yeah, but I feel there's also a compromise, Darius, because at the end of the day, in as much as yes, there are all these restaurants coming up in terms of like trying to bring back our indigenous food. But when you go there, a normal person can't be able to afford that food. Definitely. And you go back, yeah, yeah, and you go back and ask yourself, actually, this is what we had, this is what you're pushing for, this is our local food, this is our indigenous food, and yet most of us can't afford that local food and that indigenous food as we talk right now. Because at the moment, it is it has been made to be like this cool. I don't know, it's uh -huh. like, yeah, yeah, it's also yeah. associated actually with class, because you find that even, say, if we go to which restaurant, for instance, how many organic restaurants do we have in Nairobi? We have... We have this one in Karen. What's the name? Cultiva. Yeah. Can I go there like to have like a proper proper meal and be full? A kawaida Kenyan? No. Yeah. In CBD, we also have a restaurant, an organic restaurant. About it's called, three, I think, uh, the Bridges. Yeah. Is all? Is it also very pocket friendly? A lot of them are not by the experiences of uh, you know everyday uh, shopping, especially in a country like ours where the incomes are not um, that high enough yeah. to sustain uh, that kind of consumption. But then that exoticization of our, what was our foods is, I mean, so one facet of the problem. I think the bigger picture of it is the fact that people are having these conversations. And so... One of the things that we lost again uh, from the earlier conversation about cash crops is the fact that, you know, to be able to sustainably and cheaply produce these foods, then you need to put certain systems behind them. Yeah. You know, cooperatives, research, you know, you need a lot of political goodwill from, mm -hmm. you know, the, the, the state functionaries and the state agencies responsible for our food experiences. And so when, when you put all that together, the reason what we take commonly like maize uh, is can be affordably done relatively speaking affordably done is because there's these sort of structures put behind it you know in terms of the logistics of importation or local production and all that and you need that behind uh, all the other food yeah. uh, that you know we consider our own it's the only way then we can be able to you know whether it's through subsidies uh, from from you know the state on you know, the production systems, storage facilities, the researchers around it, then you are able to create the economies of scale yeah. in both production, storage, yeah. distribution, supplies, that then ensures the prices come down. Dr. Maun, did you have anything else to add on the conversation on introduction of cash crops? Okay, thanks. Uh, the colonial mm -hmm. government uh, uh, promoted promoted the cash crops a lot. Yeah. Um, perhaps to... Uh, uh, support industries that we are, we are located elsewhere, especially in Europe uh, and elsewhere. 
Um, and so uh, they encourage cash crops like tea, coffee, um, cotton, um, uh, sugarcane, and uh, of course, many, much, a lot of land was converted to what we can call now plantations of these crops. Um, after independence, mm -hmm. um, the, the current the current the governments that took over um, after independence sort of continued with the same notion that uh, cash crops were the main thing they they needed to uh, promote um, because um, they they brought hard currency as they were saying that that time not knowing that um, the the system was really deeply rooted it was in, 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 the, in our education system. Our education system was only about cash crops. Yeah. Um, and anything anything that that is traditional, like traditional leafy vegetables, uh, some of these crops mm -hmm. we are talking about, um, uh, root crops like uh, sweet potatoes, uh, uh, manioc or cassava, oh, did not feature much in our education system. Um, so, for example, myself, when I was growing up, mm -hmm. much, much of what I read in the textbooks was about these cash crops. Yeah. Um, so, and again, the, the, the new governments, after taking over from the colonial government, uh, took a lot of time to repeal or to review uh, this educational material so that uh, they can reflect the, the real situation in in the in their their country, in their new new country, um, and not only uh, that, even in research education, I mean research, um, a lot of research went into those uh, high value uh, exportable uh, crops. It's only recently now when people are now looking inwards, mm -hmm. uh, when uh, people have started now uh, focusing. Uh, research work on these uh, what we call neglected neglected and unutilized yeah. crops yeah um so it's it's everywhere in every aspect even in restaurants you go you never see these uh, traditional crops again it's only recently if you remember uh like uh, 10 uh, 15 years ago when you have started seeing duma in the, in, the, in the restaurants before then it was uh, uh, much of it was wheat products or, or um, things that that are uh, European or Western in nature. Yeah. Um, because of that attitude, that uh, the local foods didn't really matter, didn't really matter. And if you are seen eating local foods, for example, in a five-star hotel, um, mm. it's it's like it's like uh, you are a bit backward. Yeah. Um, it's, it's, it was out of place. And even today, many of these restaurants, um, they, they still have that legacy. Um, and that it may take a bit of time, but I think it will come at some point when they'll realize that uh, we need uh, also to consider local foods, which are really uh, nutritious and what that's what pop, local people want. Yeah. And even yeah. people from outside want this. Mm -hmm. They don't want to see the same thing. 
yeah they are seeing elsewhere dr maundu still on the cash crops discussion i know you me and arias have an understanding on the impacts that the cash crops have to our food and farming systems and also just farmer livelihoods perhaps we could just expound more to our listeners what the impacts are of the cash crops yes cash crops are good um, cash crops are good but um, um, i want to them a few pick a few examples yes um, just to demonstrate what i mean take an example of sugarcane um, uh, growing in kenya uh, where uh, farmers um, farmers land is is um, plowed by a company they plant uh, sugarcane and for the next 18 months or 2 years that farm is completely held by sugarcane Mm-hmm. you have nowhere else to grow anything else other than sugarcane mm-hmm. now um what effect does that have your whole farm is planted with sugarcane completely after 18 months of course you'll take that sugarcane or it will be burned uh, cut and then taken uh, to the mill and uh, you'll get your, your your bonus or your your cash but a few things may happen one um the in terms of food security that household mm-hmm. is food insecure yeah and we have seen that and we have conducted surveys and research and mm-hmm. found that families or households that grow sugarcane in western kenya are less secure in terms of food are less resilient mm-hmm. as compared with uh, families that grow other crops diverse crops Uh, because when you grow diverse crops of course you have uh, uh, an opportunity to meet all the nutrients the needs of the household as far as nutrients are concerned not the same um, when you grow uh, sugarcane of course you, one may argue that but when i get the money i can buy all these things it's not the yeah. same mm-hmm. it's not the same when you have something in your farm um uh, then the the chances are that you will consume that um and and uh, i've seen um, many 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 farmers in western kenya some of them especially vihiga they have their farms can be really really diverse um and diversity is good because uh, if your farm is really diverse you have something that comes up almost every every season or every month you have something to eat Yeah. um as opposed to somebody who has uh, just a few things or one thing uh, they have to wait for uh, when it comes into season um, just one month in the in 12 months mm. so uh, diversity is good and uh, uh, monocropping or or uh, growing food only for cash those are the problems the dangers uh, families may face yeah. under nutrition cause of uh, they compromise uh, diversity so what can be done mm-hmm. uh, it's not bad to grow cash crops but uh, we need to ensure that we have um, uh, located uh, our land um, wisely so that at least as we dedicate parts of it to cash crops then we also have uh, another portion which is set aside for traditional systems but clearly from the research And again maybe one done. thing mm-hmm. but maybe one one important thing i think i should mention here is uh, uh plantations and monocropping are not good for this earth mm-hmm. it's not good for the soil um 
uh, anything we, we we grow as a monocrop um, asks for a lot, especially in terms of nutrients. It exposes the soil. Um, the, the soil is not protected. Um, we interfere with uh, uh, the soil flora and, and we kill the soil. Yeah. Um, and therefore, um, it's it's not a, a system I would say is good for the for the for the planet. Yeah. The the traditional system where you grow many crops together, um, you have legumes in there. You have uh, cover crops like like malenge, the creepers, the malenge, yeah. the gourds, uh, some of the creeping uh, cowpeas. Um, um, and also uh, some of the training uh, uh, legumes, like some of the climbing beans. Mm -hmm. If you mix all those together, they are they are good for, for the soil. They cover the soil. You have legumes that add um, uh, nutrients such as uh, su such as uh, uh, um, uh, nitrates to the soil. Um, uh, you 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 protect the, the soil flora. Um, and yeah. uh, the soil flora improve, improves their soil structure and also uh, it makes it, it retains it alive. Yeah. So, so our traditional practices of multi-cropping, uh, uh, I think, are practices that, that needs to, to, uh, to be given a chance and also study it really properly um, and, uh, and promote it if it's possible. Yeah, because and they are good for the household. They offer uh, diverse nutrients, uh, diverse uh, diets, uh, and also every part of the year, of course, has something that comes into season and you, the household, enjoy it. Yeah, enjoys. Still on the conversation, Dr. Ari, are there any notable historical events that you would want to share with us, listeners? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I think you are referring to a. a um a story i gave about um the scramble for africa when yes. many of um the european countries were scrambling for mm -hmm. a portion of africa and mm -hmm. then, of course uh, when many of the countries realized they may end up fighting yeah. they called for, they called for a meeting in berlin what we call mm -hmm. the berlin conference in yes. 1885 yeah um and of course, it's in that meeting when uh, much of Africa was divided, subdivided. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, as many of us know, that uh, Kenya was was given to Britain, yeah, um, and uh, also Uganda, and uh, of course, much of uh, uh, the northern corridor along the Nile, all the way, and in southern Africa also, a lot of that was given to to Britain, Zambia, what used to be Northern Rhodesia, Zimbabwe, mm -hmm. what used to be Southern Rhodesia, and, and uh, Malawi and uh, South Africa, of course. But then portions of that we are given to Portuguese, mm -hmm. Portugal, of course, um, Angola, um, Mozambique, uh, and and Germany took um, a few. Yeah. Uh, Tanganyika and uh, a portion of Cameroon. I'm Cameroon, I mean. And uh, what used to be South uh, West Africa, now Namibia. Um, and of course, um, when when uh, the British moved in, they didn't uh, move in immediately. 
um, they, they gave the, the, the mandate to a company uh, to, to run its affairs uh, as um, they, they, they prepared the, the building of a railway. And of course, the Italians uh, um, got Abyssinia. And uh, I say, as I said in my talk, it was not easy to get into uh, Abyssinia, now mm -hmm. Ethiopia, because there was already, there was a, already a government there, um, the emperor. And uh, because it wasn't easy, they had, they had to bring um, uh, animals, cows, to feed the army that was going to um, enter into Abyssinia. And uh, when they brought those cows from India, uh, those cows brought along a, a disease that was not um, known in Africa, and that uh, African cows were not used to, were not immune to, and that is rinderpest. And uh, when uh, these uh, uh, cows that were introduced uh, by the Italian army in Abyssinia brought uh, rinderpest, the rinderpest, of course, uh, spread to local cows. And it, and it was like bushfire. It, it spread um, uh, west, um, south, east. Sorry. Yes, okay. And of course, Kenya being uh, a neighbor to Ethiopia, um, was one of the countries that were uh, affected a lot. It cleared uh, a good percentage of all the animals pastoralists are had, mm -hmm. um, and uh, and uh, the, it continued south. And within two three years, it was already in the Cape Province of uh, South Africa. Um, so it, it that disease alone um, made many of the local people very vulnerable. Um, and uh, a few years later, in um, in uh, about 96, 1896, 97, um, um, the there was there was short uh, drought and and locust, and also um, uh, some other disease that was introduced the 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 smallpox mm -hmm. um, that 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 endanger the people even more but now what endangered the people more is 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 the drought that came at that about the same time and found the people without animals because animals were what uh, most of the local people could run to in in case of uh, shortage so short, shortage of rain of course when there is shortage of rain people used to move to mm -hmm. wetter areas even if it's 100 200 kilometers away so when um the the situation presented itself like this uh smallpox drought um uh, no animals then uh, many of the people died yeah. and it's estimated that uh, like 50 percent of the Maasai just died out of this and 25 percent of the numbers also died out of this um and and that's attributed to uh, according to many studies that attributed to the fact that they lacked their their, their main source of food that was uh, animals. And this was before um, the British came to separate that had, Yes. So anyway, that those are and those are some of the things that came as a result of colonialism. But uh, mm -hmm. a lot of that continued uh, because that that was about the time when. Uh, um, colonialism was taking root um, mm -hmm. so um, 
uh, after that, of course, we get into the uh, 20th century and um, uh, the railway has, has been built, what we used to call the Kenya-Uganda Railway. Of mm -hmm. course, it was going as far as Kisumu at that time. Yeah. Um, Kisumu was part of Uganda at that time. It was known mm -hmm. as St. Florence. Um, so when the railway passed, um, uh, in uh, in uh, in 19, uh, 1905, now that the railway had been built and uh, Nairobi has been has been chosen as the headquarters of the colonial government, in in two thousand in nineteen oh five, now the settlers were invited to come uh, mm -hmm. into the country, and of course when settlers were were invited to come from New Zealand, from South Africa, from Australia, from uh, Europe and especially Britain, um, uh, they had to be uh, allocated land. And much of that land, of course, uh, that were allocated to them um, were lands that areas that were originally occupied by local people. So they had to push people out yeah. um, and concentrate them in small places, um, small areas, so that they could create land for the settlers from from uh, around 1905 and uh, of course uh, that also made uh, the the local people even more vulnerable because of course mm -hmm. when you are concentrated in one area um the the result is that uh, there is soil erosion because of overcrowding you cannot raise more animals now uh, you mm -hmm. can only rear a few cows um, the land is small, you cannot farm big lands. And, and again, that put a lot of stress to local people. I always joke uh, to people, they just go to a place known as Mutituni, just near Machakos, mm -hmm. a little bit no, uh, west of Machakos. That is one of the most densely populated uh, parts, parts in, in Machakos, really densely populated. And that's where you find most poverty. Mm -hmm. in, in, the, in the in the in the in the county, most poverty, the most impoverished people, because they are so concentrated. Where did they come from? They came from the areas that uh, were given to colonial colonial settlers, Mua Hills, um, and and all those plains that uh, to the to the to the south, to the south and northern west of of, of Mua. Um, and so they were all paddled there, pushed there, and even today, it's it's a uh, it's it's the place where you find all sorts of poor people, and it's the same place where you you the, that school Changoli was burned. Um, yeah. I won't be surprised. It's the same same stress because um, um, uh, you find when, when people are desperate, they turn into they turn into. Uh, drinking and also uh, abuse of such yeah. substances. So those some of those um, some of those colonial um, uh, sort of activities or interferences yeah. are still being felt even today. And even today, Doctor Maingi, besides, and, besides... And the problem, just just to say mm -hmm. one more thing, the problem after independence, people didn't bother to to. To turn, to turn that, this, these lands to, to their original owners. Yeah. Yeah, many, many of those 
large tracts of land were taken by politicians. Um, uh, and uh, they were never returned to the, to, to, to the original owners. Mm. Um, and uh, that's really unfortunate. Darius, just hold on, we are still coming back to you. Dr. Maundu, I know you talked about the different crops that were introduced even before colonization, but do we have any other food crops that you would like to share with our listeners that were really introduced during the colonial period? Um, there are a few others that, um, mm -hmm. you know, when uh, um, colonialism started, mm -hmm. um, of course, a few other crops were introduced at that time, and a very good example is the waru. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they, they had to cultivate waru uh, in the country. Of course, um, now now waru, or, or what we call the potato, or, or sometimes uh, Irish or English potato, is, is one of the most important crops in central uh, province or central area. Yeah, actually, the country. Yeah. Uh, and it's 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 become one of the the, the main uh, foodstuffs of the of uh, the central part of the of the country. Waru, strictly speaking, is um, is in a category that we call uh, high glycemic uh, mm -hmm. index foods. That means uh, waru, um, the starch gets. Uh, converted into to sugar very quickly, um, meaning if it's converted into sugar very quickly, you eat waru and within a few um, uh, hours or a couple of um, minutes, it's converted into sugar, it shoots your sugar level. And those are some of the foods that um, are not good for diabetic people and can, um, can trigger uh, diabetes. Yeah. Diabetes now is, is a major problem in the, in the area, in the central part of the country. I'm not yeah. attributing uh, <laughs> um, the upsides to this, but but uh, but it could be, and I strongly feel um, Waru being a high uh, glycemic index food, uh, it, it could be, it should be investigated. Then, uh, of course, um, um, other things that, uh, of course, were introduced um, are maize has been here for long. Maize yeah. actually was introduced in the country um, from perhaps from India by, uh, but in India it had been introduced by the Portuguese, and the the maize that we had originally and which uh, we grew for a very long time, and we developed our own uh, cultivars. Uh, which are resistant to, uh, I mean, to adverse weather in our respective cultures, was the one which has blue, black, um, red, purple yeah. colors, mm -hmm. the multicolored type of maize, which which is packed with a good starch. Mm -hmm. The glycemic index is much less um, uh, than than what we are now consuming. Um, the the white the white one, in terms of nutrition, that was nutritionally more superior than what we are eating now. And uh, again, because of uh, that that attitude that uh, was left in our minds, we 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 don't like it because it's white. Uh, yeah. Because it's, it's, it's the unga is not white. We we prefer that what is white. 
Um, uh, so it's it's not a preferred uh, type of yeah. of uh, of starch source of starch because of that color. Because even the ugali made from that is also a little bit colored. Yeah. Um, and and so the people here is a is a is a situation. People living what is theirs more nutritious. Uh, and and going for something which they have to buy every now and then, um, the the white type, especially the, the the hybrids that have come recently. Yeah. Um, I'm not saying those those are bad, but uh, what I'm saying is uh, as we do um, as we grow commercial maize, um, let's also consider uh, those uh, traditional types. We shouldn't let them uh, disappear. Yeah. Um, which are nutritionally and even in terms of if you if you roast them they are sweeter those mm. ones are sweeter than, than uh, the, the, the more commercialized types yeah. yeah and also just maybe to take you back there you're still on the cultural aspect it's quite interesting to see how Mombasa in as much as all this all this has been happening in our food and basically on our plates are there any communities who have also showcased resilience in preserving their traditional culinary practices we also have, we can also learn so much from India, actually, because there's yeah, a part I mean, of India here. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I think one of those aspects that we need to put, uh, to take into account about our food experiences, it's that it's never neat. In fact, there's a bit of a fluidity even in the definition of what's traditional. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. how far back should we go to say this is authentic Kenyan food if, mm -hmm. you know, part of maize... Uh, you know, was here for 500 years ago, and some of our communities have been here for 200 years, then how far back is yeah. indigenous or authentic yeah. or traditional food? But then, I mean, that is just part of, you know, the fluidity that is human interactions. Even within the coastal experience, you have the Italians who are there. Oh, yeah. You, know, you had the Chinese at the Kenyan coast 400 years ago. You had, you know, all the, the Zanzibaris in there. So it's, it's, it's a mashup of all these communities and the communal interactions that produces certain foods. I think the, the build-up to that is always how well can we adapt this food to our everyday experiences and the purposes that food serves in the community, whether it's in terms of diversity, whether it's in terms of variety, whether it's in terms of you know how much identity do we tie to this, in terms of our capacity to produce it locally and to be able to do that sustainably over generations, and to come up with recipes that then we can even pass down communities. So there's that aspect of, uh, you know, like the coastal food experience. You do Malindi, it's, uh, you know, there's the Italian experience there since 1960, and you have all those, um, you know, uh, Italian sort of, you know, culinaries there that some of them would pass uh, to some varying degree, you know, yeah. a sense of authenticity. And it becomes part of the Kenyan coastal experience because there are second, third generation Kenyan Italians there. So okay. there's an aspect to, you know, the whole fights between Lamu and Apartheid that happens for hundreds of years, introduced a whole bunch of, you know, foods in there with them. Yeah. And it becomes as authentic as anything you could call Kenyan. And that's that part of the complexity and, and the fluidity in terms of deciding what then in the whole experience of history do we decide to make ours and own it and even customize it if we can to make it our true experience with food? So Darius, what you're trying to say is that we don't really need to decolonize our plates but rather embrace what's with us. We do need to decolonize 
definitely we do because some of the experiences that brought some of uh, the food that we have here yeah. and the models built around them are if I may use this word, drastic violent, you know. Like even on the tea farms, on the coffee yeah. farms, the stories that you hear. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's it's both the economic war in there in terms of yeah. having certain foods here, you know, both in terms of how they were introduced and the systems built behind them to ensure that they, you know, stay a constant part of our food experience was not pleasant. It came at the cost of losing certain facets of our everyday experiences. It continues to perpetuate certain class and, you know, problematic dynamics around that in terms of affordability of some of these foods, um, their distribution, uh, who gets to control them. I mean, when you look at maize and you realize we have barely less than 10 millers in control of the entire supply chain, that's a national um, security issue. Mm. And you think about it, you know, it's essentially food as a national security issue. And that happens, you know, we know about the coffee experience. You know, what happens to the local markets, what happens to the international markets. Same conversation with tea, you know. Our tea here, all the politics around our tea auction. We know what happened to pirate around farming. So, in a sense... Perhaps, Darius, you could share more on what happened really to the pirate around farming. You know, our listeners who really don't know what really happened. Yeah. I mean, in terms of uh, you know, the whole politics around, you know, the production, uh, the you know, how it shaped the communities. And, I mean, just reflecting back on, you know, the Pyrethrum board and, you know, the work they were doing within communities and how many of the farmers' experiences uh, felt that it was not delivering. And it goes back to the conversation initially we had about cash crops, which mm-hmm. is you have all these farmers to whom... You know, you're getting rid of certain uh, farming systems and crops that you had in order to be able to farm these. But then, you know, there's conversations around, um, you know, misuse of funds, management and governance issues around, you know, uh, the extension services that were around it. And a lot of farmers figured this is not, um, in a way, able to provide us with uh, sustainable income. Also, number two, it takes away from a lot from our ability to produce for the communities around us. And so, in a sense, they got rid of it, you know. But it had already come at a cost to the farmers and the communities in in actually ways that some of the communities haven't, if you can say, fully recovered from that experience. So, and that's just one crop. You have all these tons and dozens of crops whose experience its introduction, its sustainability, and the systems built behind it definitely need to be decolonized. Perfect. I like your answer. Yeah. And I think as we wrap up, Darius, because you're coming to the end of the show, and I know also Maundu has a lot to say, so how can individuals and policymakers collaborate to ensure the preservation of traditional knowledge and also decolonizing our plates, food diversity, and sustainable food systems? The first thing is going back to where we started, understanding that your plate is political. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's the starting point of everything. That your plate is political, your plate is cultural. Then the conversation becomes, what's political about what's on my plate? You know, uh, how does these crops get here? How is it sustainable in terms of our production? Our communities are growing. I mean, we are a country where, you know, our population grows by uh, close to a million, you know, every year, which means food demands are increasing. And they will be increasing year on year, you know, for the better part of the decade or two decades, you know. Uh, in as much as the regions that are having a decline in population, we need to have 
uh, conversations about what does political mean, you know, in terms of the market efficiencies in the system, the entire uh, production and supply chain in terms of uh, where, where are the seeds sourced, what conversations are we having about seeds, and we know there's yeah. a 2015, uh, you know, uh, the act, you know. Right now we are having proposals that, you know, to outlaw uh, use of, you know, traditional manure, uh, Who's driving that conversation? Why are they driving that conversation? What happens to farmers, you know, if they lose the ability to share seeds, which is a very interesting tradition. And it's one of the proposals that's floating around. Hopefully it doesn't go into, you know, into law. But then what does it mean when you want to outlaw use of traditional manure, which is part of, you know, the most readily available chip yeah. within communities? Yeah, I'm just curious. When did the proposal, when was it shared? Is it available on publicly? Yes, it is available yeah. publicly. It's an ongoing conversation. Um, there's a lot of it uh, on the interwebs. It hasn't been passed into law, but it's definitely... Uh, you can tell there are special interest groups trying to get that into, uh, uh. you know. But what do we stand to lose? A lot of our farmers do not have the kind of incomes to be able to buy... You know, fertilizers. Uh, fertilizers. So and how sustainable have, is it? Because of course, yeah. manure is more sustainable in comparison. It to, is more sustainable. Yeah. It is from the farm. It is part of you know the farm practices. Yeah. So you are taking that away, both as you know a very convenient way, a convenient way uh, of uh, you know farmers being able to you know to to work on their yields, but then you also realize that's part of how your plate becomes political because if it passes and hopefully not. Uh, what do we stand to lose? What will be the farmer's reaction to their inability to, you know, not use uh, this manure, but also not be able to financially afford, you know, uh, whatever now the, the special interest groups will be offering in terms of all that artificial fertilizer? What happens to the farmer's yields? Yeah. Asante Sanadarius, Dr. Maundu, as we wrap up the conversation, uh, Perhaps you can share with us the role of food in shaping identity and basically in building a sustainable future for Kenya and in what ways can embracing indigenous foods and culinary traditions contribute to a sustainable food system? I, I think um, we are still a um, long way to go to mm -hmm. sort of have uh, foods that can be called Kenyan uh, foods or a Kenyan cuisine. Yeah. Because a Kenyan cuisine uh, at the moment um, we we have ugali, and the ugali we have is is not the original ugali. Yeah. Kenyan ugali, according to me, um, should be made not from maize but from finger millet or or sorghum, mm -hmm. um, which is which is brown, uh, which is brown, but very healthy and very tasty. Um, um, I, I've done some few experiments. We, you ask you ask um, hotels, yeah. Um, for example, when you're at a conference to prepare the two, the white one and the brown one, <coughs> people go for the brown. One. Yeah, people go for the brown one. It's it's tastier, and uh, it's it's um, it's tastier and it is the it's more nutritious because people are now health conscious. conscious. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. So. If if we are to talk about Kenyan cuisine, um, that those are the sort of considerations we have to make. We have to uh, go uh, for ugali, not from maize, 
but from those other uh, more traditional stuff, file millet, finger yeah. millet, mm-hmm. sorghum. Um, that would be a genuine Kenyan cuisine, but not the white uh, white uh, ugali, um, which is which is actually um, not really healthy because much of the important stuff has been removed in the in the, in the factory. Yeah. Um, so that would be that. And then in terms of Kenyans like, of course, eating ugali with uh, vegetables, <laughs> there are lots yeah. of vegetables. Yes. Um, and these communities has uh, have their own vegetables. Um, let let us bring those many many dry types of vegetables into the market, so that we can enjoy them. Um, so that um, the Kenyan uh, cuisine, part of the Kenyan cuisine, can be those traditional vegetables and that brown ugali. Yeah. Um, increasingly, we are eating chapati. Um, mm-hmm. Many visitors come to Kenya. They go for chapati, but chapati is originally from Asia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only that uh, chapati, the, the Kenyan chapati, uh, is uh, has a lot of uh, oil in it. Yeah. Um, but it's an Asian originally. It's, a, it's an Asian dish. So, uh, um, chapati can also be uh, made in a traditional fashion, like if you can uh, include some of those uh, traditional. Um, sources of starch, like malenge, add a mm-hmm. little bit of malenge, or or some of those uh, root crops like uh, sweet potato and cassava. You 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 can make a sort of a near Kenyan dish from those. But the way it is right now, chapati spreading like bushfire into yeah. every corner of this country. Even in rural areas, they are eating chapati, um, and it's not a a, a healthy a healthy food because it's calories, it's a lot of fat in it. Yeah. Um and uh, it's 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 going to if if people um increase their their consumption of chapati and then uh, and uh, then uh, we are likely to see the effects in, in terms of obesity, uh, heart diseases, non-communicable diseases uh, in general. Um Including diabetes, those those are things that are likely to come uh, yeah. because of uh, consumption of those um, starchy foods that are not really nutritious. Yeah. Then uh, the mm-hmm. other thing which which I should also uh, mention is the fact that um, uh, Kenyan Kenyan uh, food is very diverse. As I mm-hmm. said, uh, uh, my last talk we have over two hundred types of vegetables. We have lots of legumes. We have lots of uh, other cereals, as I mentioned. We have roots uh, um, that that also can be used to develop uh, Kenyan dishes, uh, and that I think is the direction I would love uh, to see um, uh, dishes that are diverse uh, and dishes that are uh, more nutritious. Because if we diversify, it's better for our society. Yeah, yeah. Other than just uh, concentrating on, on a few um, uh, sources of uh, few foods that that are not healthy for us, and and just just to, to mention, I mentioned about the glycemic index, but mm-hmm. maybe the term may be new to many people. <laughs> yes, uh, actually, glycemic glycemic index is a measure of how fast um, when you eat a meal or a food, how fast. 
it is absorbed and changed as sugar in uh, in your blood system. Because of course, if you eat starchy food like ugali, uh, it is immediately worked on by enzymes, and that sh uh, the result is sugar, uh, which is now absorbed into your bloodstream, and of course that raises your blood sugar. So a, a, a food that has high glycemic index, like the white bread many Kenyans like, has yeah. a very high glycemic index. That, that means it pushes the blood sugar level very fast and very high. Um, that white bread, um, that, that white rice people like so much, that, yeah. those, are, those are foods. That waru, those yeah. are foods that have really, really high glycemic index. But many of the local cereals, um, like this, the, the, the millets and the, the cassava flour, the, the sweet potatoes, the, their glycemic is, index is much lower. And that's why local people, when they are given this, they eat this, they say they can they can continue farming for the whole day without yeah. need, having to go for it. Because their sugar is released poly poly, slowly by slowly. It's not released as, at once. Um, and and uh, that also protects us from these uh, diseases we are talking about. So that's that's why we are advocating for some of these uh, local foods, uh, be, because many of them have uh, uh, health benefits. Dr. Maundu, do you have any closing remarks? Not necessarily closing remarks, but rather... Do you have any call to action that you would love to share with our listeners today? Maybe the the, the, the sort of uh, last word I would like to mention is uh, just to encourage the listeners to be conscious of the fact that uh, that mind, that mind, our minds have, have that attitude, have been influenced in one mm -hmm. way or another. And you can see that in every aspect of our life. Um, and, even uh, when you see, I'm, I'm sorry to say this, but women dying, I mean, bleaching their, their, their skins, it's still part of that, what I call kasumba. Um, if you see, when you see, uh, when you see um, uh, uh, our uh, uh, local institutions, uh, and, just, just ignoring traditional foods in their, in their, in their menus, um, and 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 uh, even looking down upon many of of uh, the, the foods um, that that local people offer. For example, many of, of institutions serve cabbage. Cabbage is not nutritious at all. At all, yeah, you yeah. compare the profile of cabbage and some of the local traditional vegetables. There's no comparison whatsoever, but still people go for cabbage because of that attitude. Mm -hmm. uh, it it goes from food to dressing to to all every single aspect of life. So what I would encourage people to do is to be conscious of that fact. Yeah. Even, even uh, uh, when they are buying something in the supermarket, uh, let's be conscious of that fact. Even. Even uh, many many times when I go to restaurants, um, especially in conferences, I I, try, I interact with the, the the waiters and I ask them why are you serving this, and the answer is the same because I found 
uh, I mm. was instructed to do. Yeah. So it's something that has been going on and on. And unless we are conscious of that fact, then uh, we this will drag on and on. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is um, uh, let, let's be conscious of that fact and uh, let's, let's promote uh, what, what used to be traditional. Thank you. Darius, I think I just need you to take you back on basically how can me as Feli basically or you as Darius and also our police, how can we then collaborate to ensure that we do preserve. You've already talked about this, this knowledge that, that this traditional knowledge specifically on the manual, but the government has introduced a proposal. But how then do we ensure we do collaborate to ensure that this preservation of this knowledge that we have, there's also food diversity. Yeah. For me, it's one, let's say, right, right, right. Put it on paper, mm -hmm. you know. Let's document as much of our food experiences as we can. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, our traditional practices, uh, the, the, there's this conversation that's always said about, uh, you know, uh, this lady who, you know, uh, every time she wanted to cook yams, she would chop both sides and then she would put on a plate and then, you know, essentially prepare it. And her husband asked, you know, why do you do that? She said, I don't know, my mom used to do it. I said, oh, like, next time when you go see mom, we'll ask her then. They asked the mom, the mom said, oh, yeah, I do that because my mother used to do it. And... Then they say, okay, we'll ask grandma, you know. Then when they went to ask grandma, she said, oh, yeah, you know, back then my 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 sephoria, my pants used to be small, so I had to chop the arms on the side to fit in the sephoria, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> Part of how, you know, these stories, you always want to ask, why do we do X? Why do we do Y? Yeah. And can we document this such that, you know, in a way you can always look back. It's always easier for people to access it. And we have... I mean, digital media, blogs, we have vloggers, we have food fairs, we have... We need to create as much and document as much of our food experiences as we possibly can. At a personal level, at research level, at, you know, experiential level, and use all the multimedia platforms that are there because once it goes on record, then it becomes easier for others to, you know, one, either authenticate it, add to it, correct some of the things, you know, uh, on the account that's given about some of these foods. So for me, the big part is document, document, document. And it's part of why uh, we at The Elephant have done year-on-year -year collaborations with uh, Road to Food because then it allows us to be able to put this on record. People are able to say, aha, now I understand why this happens to maize or this happens to bananas, this happens to, you know, macadamia yeah. or whatever other crop yeah. out there. I'm big on documenting. We are big on documenting. Uh, number one, number two, um, as I said, beginning to understand that food is political and asking what is, what are these actual political experiences around our food? You know, we've talked about legislations, you know, whether it's on seeds, whether it's on manure, whether it's on yields, whether it's on, you know, uh, farm prices of foods and market prices of foods. So it's important to look at it uh, on that angle. It's important to talk about the cultural aspects of it. So for me, it's big on conversations, uh, number one, number two, documentation. Uh, number three, I would say, is generating new uh, you know, information around it. And especially, so for example, when you talk about, um, I'll go back to the brew conversation. Mm -hmm. Almost every country in the world has their particular brands. You know, they say, Ecuadorians will say, you know, for us it's rum, you know, the French will say it's wines. But then you realize that one of the experiences we Kenyans have that is very British is the fact that we do not have a particular 
general. Yeah. Brand of whether it's wine or vodka or rum or whiskey or as part of your national identity. We it's it, it's it's always the funny part about the fact that when you go abroad, so say it's the it's the Euros or um Olympics, people tend not to like the British, you know, because the funny experience is people say they drink everything that they'll find there. You know, <laughs> you know the French will order theirs. They yeah. don't know what they're ordering. The British will be like, what's available? Which is also a very Kenyan experience considering yeah. we were their settler colony. I mean, when you look at that kind of a thing, you realize we inherited this experience that we've never questioned. And I mean, I know, I would understand, I mean, I know the vice president is... Um, talking about, you know, the one alcohol in central Kenya. But what's interesting is you look at um, the available data, it will tell you that we really do not have a particular, uh, you know, uh, drinking problem, as he puts it, or at least not in the way he frames it. And part of the problem is that is that because we do not have a particular culture in terms of whether people want to take their wines or their, you know, their rums or their vodka, the people drink everything. And so... What would pass for, you know, a particular, you know, uh, brews that we decide our national experience, then it becomes easier to ask how does that fit into, you know, a particular drinking culture. Then it becomes easier to access that. Now, think of that as just one problem. Yeah. Something we inherited from, you know, our colonial experience and it creates funny implications within community. Like, yeah. who decides, you know, who's, uh, you know, when 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 is this drinking a problem? Yeah, you know, is it? It's also a class conversation, because we decide, you know, if I walk into I don't know Windsor and order wine now, I'm okay. But if some guy here goes to a local right now and grabs a, a white cup, like yeah, he has a problem. Yeah, there's a class dynamic to it, and you see all these experiences. We've never gone back and ask why. Yeah, it's quite interesting how the conversation has moved to now. <laughs> But yeah, I feel like we need to censor here and say that it's not that we encourage people to drink alcohol, but it's not that we couldn't avoid it talking about colonization and food. I feel like that's a discussion right. we couldn't avoid. <laughs> yeah. That part out. <laughs> no, I think it can just stay. Some of it can just fly. Yeah. Okay. Thank you so much, Darius. Do you have any punching statements as you wrap up the show? For me, it's going back to uh, what, what, what we've just talked about. Documenting, documenting, documenting. Uh, putting resources behind, mm -hmm. being able to chronicle our food experiences in such a way. I mean, if you look online right now on Twitter, there's a lot of fights between um, you know Kenyans and, and, mm -hmm. and Nigerians and Ghanaians, and you know about uh, who has a better urban street food experience, who has you know, which which are always interesting conversations because you don't want them to go away, but it also gives you sort of small small insights into. How, for example, Kenyans will feel about Nigerian street foods, Nigerian feels about Kenyan street foods, Kenyans feel about Malawian or South African street foods. And for me, I look at that as part of the documentation of our food experiences. Of course, there are varied ways to go about, um, you know, that food documentation. But I think the conversation should continue in all these possible spaces and in every other platform where we can be able to create collaboration, whether it's between the states and you know, academia, researchers, and, you know, uh, people within the new media platforms, vloggers, especially food vloggers, food fairs, and across the continuum. Keep the conversations going, keep these accounts coming, document, document, document. 
Thank you so much, Darius. And thank you so much, Dr. Maundu, for joining us. Asanteni sana to our listeners for listening in. We really appreciate your support. Follow us on social media at True to Food on Twitter, at True to Food on Facebook, and at True to Food on Instagram. And you can also check out our website, www.truetofood, to learn more on the work that we do. And you can also check out The Elephant. I'll share the link on the show notes, specifically on the food series, where you'll be able to learn more on some of the work that we have been doing. This episode has been recorded by Creatives Garage. Creatives Garage is a multidisciplinary arts organization that provides a platform for creatives network, share ideas, collaborate, create new works, gain market access, and push boundaries. Thank you so much for listening in.